Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to thank Sarit Hashis, Vaida Ona, Wolfie, Courtney Lashar, and John Caldwell for becoming supporting members of Team Human. They got that urge to go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. And now they get access to our Discord, links to my otherwise paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks. You too can support Team Human by supporting Team Human. You're on Team Human, our new monthly recording from the Kibitz Room, an evolving conversation with the Team Human community about the issues and ideas leading them to think about the relationship between people, power, technology, capitalism, spirit, and our shared understanding of what the heck is going on here. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right. Another salon recorded live in the Team Human Kibitz Room, deep underground in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker Complex. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been thinking a lot about AI and all that stuff lately, and I think the biggest issue that that kind of underlies all of this concern about AI and different technologies and how they can tell us different things or the kinds of outcomes they come out with. I, I think it all comes down to using probability in our decision making. I know we all want the greatest chances of a successful outcome in anything that we do. We we want to take whatever steps offer us the highest probability of getting the job or winning the pitch or selling the book or beating the cancer or meeting a compatible mate or getting or doing or achieving whatever it is that we're after. But I've started to wonder 
if our digital tools, or at least the techno-solutionist mindset that they afford, might be fetishizing the powers of probability at the expense of true human ingenuity. Digital tech, it, it not only offers the ability to calculate probabilities based on an unprecedented volume of data and statistics, but it also allows engineers to model and iterate scenarios through simulations. That's what so many of these uh, uh, artificial intelligences are really busy doing most of the time. And the plots of, of TV shows and movies like Westworld and Terminator, or The Peripheral, they're, they're all based on this idea that we can run millions and millions of simulations in order to identify the one that leads to the greatest probability of success or even just survival. And after gaining that knowledge, it could be considered almost unethical not to take that path. So, for example, imagine a situation where a relative has been told that they have likely a, a fatal cancer, but they have the greatest odds of survival if they take a particular combination of chemo drugs. And assuming side effects are no worse than the symptoms and that a person wants to live, shouldn't they take the path offering the greatest likelihood of survival? Or or what if we know from historical data that a business, student, or artist has the greatest chance of succeeding by following a particular path? If they're in their right mind, why would they do anything else? And many of the technologists and systems thinkers I've met in Silicon Valley, they embrace this logic of probability in everything they do, from raising money and hiring employees to self-care and exercise and selecting a mate. It's a form of a kind of math nerd power applied to life. Use machine logic and cycles to run simulations, determine probable outcomes, and act accordingly. But Humanity and life were themselves highly improbable outcomes. Life is an outlier phenomenon, perhaps even cosmically unique. So were the discovery of antibiotics, psychedelics, propulsion, speech, relativity, and probability itself. Amazingly, in spite of their propensity toward fetishizing probability, most of the tech titans I've met hold themselves out as unique and improbable uber-humans and often bet their company fortunes on high-risk, high-reward, moonshot projects. No, it's just we, the lowly masses of consumers and users who are supposed to keep reverting to the mean, following the instructions of our algorithms and accepting the premise that the tightly controlled latitude of freedom offered by our apps will afford us better lives. That's how the tech companies justify embedding almost all of our software with everything they know about behavioral finance and cryptology. It's for our own good. In reality, I suspect our conformity with previously collected data sets only optimizes our predictability for the benefit of the marketplace. But more importantly, what happens to a society that narrows the potential paths of its actors to the most probable ones? What happens when being weird gets harder rather than easier? Where does innovation come from? When we're in a world facing numerous existential dilemmas, do we really want to tamp down on the behaviors that yield novel solutions? 
without intervention, I suspect we continue down the path of least resistance, incapable of breaking our patterns and moving inexorably toward the only possible certainty. And I don't mean taxes, but the other certainty. No, it's time we welcome the improbable instead. It's more fun and, dare I say it, more likely to afford us a living future. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So in the name of unpredictable outcomes i bring you the team human uh the the completely uh, spontaneous and unexpected um ideas questions and concerns from the team human community hi everybody thanks for being on team human we're coming to you live from the kibitz room with a self-selected posse of Team Human members who are here to uh, console. That's the kind of week I've had. Um, To console, comfort, collaborate, and uh, uh, plot the human overthrow of society. Yeah, I've had crazy week. Lots of just uh, stuff, you know? Lots of stuff. I've been really conscious of the way that the, the systems in which I'm embedded. I don't mean that the human systems so much as the administrative systems have created so much more work and effort than is necessary. You know, I'm, I'm teaching, I've been teaching at CUNY at Queens. And I realize now that these, the, the computer systems that we have make everything so much more work that I think the majority of professor time is now spent um, nursing the computer systems that are supposed to be helping us. And it's kind of become my, my view of everything right now, you know, from jobs and salaries and roads. And it's just, oh my gosh, we're spending so much effort maintaining the systems that maybe one at one point in the past we put into place to help us. But now it's just, uh, man, it's a lot of work. So I'm, I'm now on the, uh, embarking on a new, uh, on a new effort not to, to extricate myself from some of these systems and try to optimize my time for doing the actual stuff I would like to be doing rather than whatever this other 
this other thing is. It's just, it's just odd. Sometimes when you see it, it's like, oh my gosh, the majority of my time is doing the other, the, <laughs> the support thing rather than the life thing. But so it'll be an interesting year watching that. Now, my other news, and I guess I was going to say I can just share it with us, but of course everyone gets to hear this. My other news is I have uh, begun on a, uh, uh, a piece of mycopunk fiction for what, for what that's worth. A, a kind of a mushroom-based solar punk, if, if that makes sense. A nice little happy post-apocalyptic story as a graphic novel. So once I get started on a project, like a creative project in particular, I start to get really intolerant of the things that keep me away from doing that. It's weird, but that's that's probably a healthy urge because it means I'm I'm liking it. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. But um, psyched to uh, uh, to hear where where you're all at, and to to have some discussions. These have become really my favorite part of of Team Human. So thank you all for for making that so. So does anybody have a, a thought or question or concern or thing? I see we already have our first audience member raising their hand. If you could say your name, where you're from, followed by your question or comment, I will be inviting you to the stage and you are with us. Excellent. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Jim Jewell. I'm calling from Seattle. Uh, I've been here before and so I, I uh, hesitated to, to jump in. But Douglas, you already addressed this a little bit, the effect of chat GPT on <laughs> education. And uh, I'm a, not only a teacher, but also a union lead. So I've had a lot of faculty coming to me and talking to me about their concerns around ChatGPT. And all the discussions that you kind of alluded to when you address this are about how to prevent it in, as a form of plagiarism or how to get out ahead of it with more tech. But I think I'm more concerned about how AI and ChatGPT are going to change the educational landscape in terms of the values that students are seeing and what we offer especially because I teach composition. I teach a process more than than any kind of, of content. So I'm less concerned about how to handle chat GPT in the class and more concerned about how ch chat GPT is going to affect just the existence of my class going forward. And so the question isn't really how do we respond on the ground, but more how are AI and G chat GPT really going to shift the overall educational discourse and value proposition for students? I mean, it's interesting, you know, the the emergence of computers and Scantron and all that as sort of an earlier industrial age intervention in school kind of shifted education away from, well, what we would call sort of Harkness style, you know, and constructivist styles of education. Harkness style is where everything's a conversation. You even you don't even teach math didactically. You do everything in that more Socratic method where students kind of um, they they infer mathematical rules. You know, it's it's trickiest in math and easiest in English or philosophy. But it's a teaching method that that all but disappeared because of the uh, uh, kind of scantrons and this obsession with assessment, both in order to judge the students and in order to judge, you know, the teachers by industrial age measures. So, you know, when I look at AI, I feel like the difference, sort of the, the, the categorical difference now is that AIs work so far anyway, primarily by probability. You know, if you look at the way chat GPT writes. What it does is it, it each next word is the most probable next word, given what it knows about 
human behavior. What's the most, what's the word most likely to follow this word? What's the sentence most likely to follow this sentence, given the, the set that I'm working on? And the concern for me, and I think I just wrote a piece about this, is as we start to center probability as sort of the primary measure of, uh, uh, well, the, the main way to make decisions. I mean, for certain things, I'm happy with it, with probability. If you have a terrible cancer and we know there's an 80% chance of getting better if you use this regimen of chemo versus that one, you know, which only has 60, I'll do the 80. Thank you. I'll do whatever science has shown has the most likely positive outcome. But when we start using that kind of these, these, probabilities, you end up with everybody necessarily having the same answer, right? You lose, you become, you know, increasingly brittle. So, you know, when I think about education being guided by AI, I get so concerned about about the narrowing of things, about the way statistics, you know, just kind of is going to push everybody in public school. We can't help it anyway. But trying to, you know, everybody towards the exact middle of that bell curve, towards everything averaging down and losing the strangeness and innovation and novelty that we actually need, you know, as, as I'm sure you experience it. The, the classroom is a place where we nurture the novelty and the, the, the novel thinking of as many students as possible at the same time. How did you get the answer, Johnny? Oh, look, Jane, how did you get that answer? Those are two really different, you know, uh, different elegant solutions to that problem. I, I remember when... <laughs> My daughter was read um, Lord of the Flies with a new, it was kind of a substitute English teacher for the year in uh, sixth or seventh grade. And um, the teacher said, well, what do uh, Piggy's glasses represent? And my daughter said, I think, you know, they represent civilization. And the teacher said, wrong. Like, wrong? I mean, first off, as far as I'm concerned, it's right. Not just because it's my kid. It's, it's right. That's what the glasses were, right? You made fire with the glasses, and then the glasses broke, and it was... it. Of course it does. But for the teacher to say wrong, it's because they had the... Um, in, in their case, probably the cliff notes or the monarch notes that said what the what they're supposed to represent, you know, some lesson plan that, that she got from, from a book. But when it's AI, it first off creates the illusion that it's that it's not a one size fits all thing right that it's derived this answer uniquely for the situation but what it really has done is just applied probability to it so no it's awful but what it's going to require you know and this is the the hard part is kind of changing what we think of what we think education is for you know is it to prepare people for the workplace of today, you know, or is it to help them reinvent, you know, society? Is is school applied towards, you know, your job training or is school the opposite of job training? Is, is school the thing that the compensation you get for a life, you know, where you're going to have to have job training? Is that something that we get? So, you know, until we flip that, I think it's only going to get worse you know, worse, not better. But for me, you know, that was why, you know, I know uh, most teachers are just worried about, like you say, oh, no, the students are going to turn this in right now. How am I going to be able to tell if they cheated or not? As if as if that should even be our job, you know, telling if they cheated or not. And and that's why I like, you know, the thing I, I mentioned in that 
piece was in 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 Europe turning in the paper is considered the beginning of the of the process not the end you turn in the paper as your kind of opening salvo in a live conversation that you're going to have with your the person running your tutorial with the person that you're reading with you know that's the way that they call it. you read with somebody you write a paper they read it and then you have your discussion so if we're starting to work that way then um, you know the whole chat gpt thing it doesn't doesn't even really enter into it, except maybe they use it as a tool. And because they're using it as a tool, just like some of us use Cliff Notes and we had a tool, you know, you end up moving towards the most conventional interpretations of things rather than, than interesting ones. Yeah. Some of the challenges that you just laid out of, you know, getting away from the idea of simply uh, worker training or other forms of assessment are even more challenging in an environment like mine because it's a community college mm. uh, and it's cash strapped. Uh, and so this is definitely the fights I, th I see in front of us are how in that cash strapped environment where they're really concerned about where students are going to be employed after their two years, how do we make those those shifts of, of, of thinking? And it's a, a big challenge. <laughs> no, it's hard. I mean, I teach in a city college, but half my students are straight from community college. And it's really it's really hard. They come in. What job can I get from taking this course? What job can I get by being a major, a media studies major? And I mean, I'm trying to be honest. Dude, there's no jobs. There's not going to get a job. Jobs are already, jobs are an artifact of the industrial age and we're moving into something else now. I mean, there are going to be a few people who get to have jobs, but you know, it's going to be work and that's going to look very different and being able to remain valuable to your society as some kind of a worker over time and over as things change is uh, means gathering a very different skill set than you know what you think of as your traditional community college you know abilities it's yeah hard. thank you yeah but really i'm looking forward to sharing it with colleagues when this comes out oh thanks and thanks for what you do, you know, gosh, to be teachers. I mean, I don't know how much longer I can do it, frankly. It's like, it's so, and that's partly for the, the reason of that so little of the actual teaching is sitting with students who've actually done something who want to engage with me. It's, it's, you know, there's this sense and partly it's, it's because a lot of universities have abused this to get money, but you know, the credential matters so much more than what happens. Like, will I pass? Am I going to? It, they want the diploma more than they want the time that's being offered them. And that's that's just a, a, a symptom of, of the society that we're in right now. And we have our next audience member, TBRI001. What's your name? Where are you from? And what is your question or comment? Hello. Good evening. My name is Brian. I'm calling in from uh, Barcelona, other side of the ocean. And I just wanted to add a little bit to what the previous uh, speaker talked about, because I'm a uh, I'm a lecturer in an international business school here, and I'm in the middle of uh, grading my first term final projects. And I've received one. I teach cross-cultural uh, business issues, and I received one which uh, I think parts of it were used uh, written uh, using something similar to ChatGPT because it was quite interesting, because it was a very elegantly well sort of well-written piece of work, but based on a completely mistaken sort of analysis. 
So it was written in a very sort of predictable, really well-structured way, but based on, and very confidently, but based on a completely sort of mistaken uh, analysis. I don't want to get too specific. Mm. And it sort of reminded me about what you said, Douglas, about when we take sort of that human element out of music, when we take that human element out of analysis with the warts, and like when you talk about James Brown, when he occasionally goes out of tune. And so for me, like I, I can't confirm whether it was Chad GPT or anything else, but it felt very artificial to me, even though it was very well written, very competently written. It was written from a completely sort of mistaken uh, point of view. So I wanted to add that. And I also think that uh, I do think that ChatGPT could work as a tool. I was listening to an interview yesterday on a podcast uh, called Hard Fork, I think. And they interviewed a teacher who said she's using it with her, I think, her high school students to help them uh, construct outlines and paragraphs and things like that. So do you think that using it as a tool would take away some of that that human element to analysis? You know, I guess it depends how you use it. You know, I wanted to see, and this is when they had it open, the open AI, whatever that was, the chat GBT thing. I think they, they closed it up. It was just costing too much money. But when I first had the idea for my uh, uh, mushroom graphic novel, I pasted the premise into the, like the question hole in the AI thing. And I said, write a story for a graphic novel about a girl and a blah, 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 blah. And it wrote this, it wrote this really kind of stupid story. And then I did it again and did it again. I did it like three times. And I mean, and it kept being just having these really simple ideas. I mean, when I'm talking about is, you know, you know, mushroom consciousness, you know, like uh, possessing people and all. And they're like, the mushroom king pulled out his sword. And you know, it's like, oh no. But then I started to think if I had time, I wanted to go back and now it's closed. The way I would use it is to ask like really specific questions, like to spark creativity, you know, to say like, okay, if you, you know, you're a 12 year old girl living in this situation and you know, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Or how might you respond when such and such happens? There's ways to play with, with it that are different. You know what I mean? It's more like, I would want to think of it more like a fantasy role-playing 10-sided dice, right? When you, when you roll it to, to get outcomes and to see, I, I would think of an, of an AI that way. What if I cast out and use it or in a, a slightly, not a cult is, in the, is the wrong word, but it's sort of more William Burroughs, Brian Geisen, cut and paste. Let's play with this thing. Ways that open thought rather than ways to complete it, right? So I would think about, I would think about use AI as a way to provoke questions like one of those Brian Eno, just what are oblique strategies decks, throw a question at it, see what comes back. And if that sparks something else, rather than looking at it as a way to finish something or narrow your options, think of it as a way to get you to think of a combination or of something that you hadn't thought of before. So it might say, oh, well, you know, Alan Watts once said, da, 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 da. So I'm, I'm interested in finding ways to talk to an AI that get it to speculate rather than conclude. And to, to the extent it could do that, it could be kind of fun. You know, you could use it as a, this other friend, you know, to, to bounce ideas off. 
Thanks. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm starting a new semester on Monday, and this is uh, going to help me a lot because I don't want to think of this as some kind of the beginning of a, a new arms race between AI and, and teachers. Uh, but I think that uh, your insights are going to really help me. Thank you very much. And it could be sure. You know, and it's just like, you know, with Google at the beginning, you know, when, when students used to use Google the way they're trying to now use AI, because Google, you know, your Google response can kind of answer your question for you. You know, but but then get one of those, um, you know, uh, VPN services and have them do provocative Google searches coming from different countries, IP addresses, like do a Google search of the word Jew, right? Coming from California, coming from Tel Aviv and coming from, you know, United Arab Emirates or something, you're going to get you get three really different pages of of responses to what the Google results are for Jew. And so if you do that, again, I always, I, I've never been against using technology in the classroom, as long as you're using technology in the classroom to teach technology, right? And to teach, to teach that, and that's fine. It's just when you use it to compensate for not teaching something else that it's a, that it's a problem. That's great. I'm going to try the Google thing because I've got students from about sometimes 20, 30 different countries in one class. So I think they'll really like that. Yeah, Thank it's you. scary. Yeah, experiment with it yourself to make sure you don't get a term that's going to get you, you know, kicked out of school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you do, you, do, you know, Jew at, at, in, in, with a Saudi Arabian VPN and you'll get like Protocols of the <laughs> Elders of Zion in your top five hits. It's like, dang. All right. So, okay. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> sure. you. We are going to welcome Psychoid to the stage. What is your name? Where are you from? And what is your question? Yeah, my name is Josh. I'm from Chicago. Not a professor myself. I'm a rock musician. So <laughs> Excellent. I was just wondering if in, you see any kind of patterns in speculative fiction or science fiction that would lead towards the kind of worldview that Elon Musk has. I'm obviously not trying to, <laughs> you know, demonize my favorite uh, fiction uh, genre, but just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, there's a, there traditionally, I mean, and that's more like 1950s traditionally, you know, science fiction, like gaming and a lot of things were kind of considered boy things. You know, most D&D groups that I knew in the 70s and 80s, I mean, there'd be like six boys and maybe one girl, right? I mean, and, and you know, science fiction was like that until we started to get, you know, Octavia Butler and, and you know, the, the great women sci-fi writers who came up. You know, they were actually some around in the 70s, but they were, you know, few and far between, you know, a heck of a lot more now, you know. I mean, you know, there's Annalee Newitz and there's a ton of people who can, you know, write, write as well and weirdly as anyone. I guess part of it is that, you know, sci-fi was always associated with kind of space and exploration. So it had something to do with space and colonization and going to Mars and doing all those things. And that is kind of, you know, like a continuation of white male, Western, whatever. I guess put it this way, the future that was pro projected by a still patriarchal society is going to be patriarchal in ways that they don't even 
recognize, you know, and as we finally catch up with, you know, uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler and start understanding the ways that they were writing about gender as sci-fi are the ways that we're coming to understand gender, you know, gender now. So, I mean, there's always going to be in sci-fi, you know, some genres that are more, you know, rock'em, sock'em, robot, cowboy, you know, typical male sort of adventure stories. But I think less and less, the more organismic we get, you know, the more we see, you know, mycelium in Star Trek. And, you know, uh, uh, it's not just that they've integrated gay and bi and trans and all sorts of and, and, and different gendered people and creatures into it that they just do because you know they're just catching up with the times but i think the the fabric of the stories is a little bit different as we can move away from you know typical hero's journey stuff and protagonist antagonist you know someone wins and someone loses kinds of story structures it's weird i just started um i'm trying not to be disappointed i got the the screener for um I know you're not supposed to watch it on a on a screen, but for Avatar 2, whatever, The Way of Water, whatever they call it. And it just, I got so, it's just like all this war and blowing shit up. And I'm like, oh man. I mean, I paused because it was like, I wanted to go like deep into the weird, wonderful world. And, you know, I wanted to learn. Yeah. The next level of what I don't know about Avatar land. You know, how can I... Right. How can I think more like that and be more like that? Understand love and gender and children and this. But I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, man, it's just they're just getting, you know, attacked. I can I can watch this on the news, you know. So I'm going to go back and hopefully find out that there that I get to learn cool, weird things. But, you know, but it did make me think, wow, you know, and I get it. It's Hollywood and they need big explosions and conflicts and things like that. But science fiction will have more freedom to be, you know, more exploratory and open ended and even provide us with happy endings and and reconciliation rather than vanquishing somebody. It will be able to do that the more that we as a society can envision that sort of that narrative that narrative structure. But science fiction needs to do two things. Speculative fiction needs to do two things, not just one, right? Speculative fiction, you know, well, it could do one of two things at a time. It either explains really new kinds of things in a traditional way, or it explains traditional things in a really new way. And that's the part that I'm more interested in, is the new styles of storytelling. It's hard for it to do both. If you do both, often your audiences get get disoriented, but yeah, I'm interested in new modes of storytelling, you new, new narrative structures. And, and I'm more interested in that than I am a new content. Here's to more good speculative fiction in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Anchor Lee is joining us. What is your name? Where are you from? And what is your question? Yeah, so my name is Alex Kelly, and uh, I'm in Georgia, also known as Montreal, on the unceded land of the Ganongahaga people. 
And in fact, uh, Douglas, you, you, you mentioned decolonization, even uh, reconciliation at some point uh, here in Canada. Uh, obviously, it's a big topic. So my question is, in a way, what's our role in decolonization and does it get in the way of actual indigenization to, to bring indigenous knowledges to bear upon all sorts of things that we do together? Uh, you've spoke before, spoken before about uh, very useful uh, things on indigenous knowledges, but uh, how can we contribute in a way that doesn't get uh, as an obstacle to the diversity of knowledges? And just to plug it in, like uh, the, the, the concept I'm working with these days on some things uh, is on epistemic justice. Basically, who decides what counts as knowledge worthy of being shared and learned and uh, promoted? So what's our role? I mean, it's hard. It depends, you know, who you are and what situation you're in, you know. And it's also, it's hard to know when, you know, sometimes you do something and then it's like, then you get accused of virtue signaling rather than, you know, even even people sometimes who are earnest get accused of virtue signaling and then people who are virtue signaling, I don't know what they're up, what their final intent is. It's It's a hard moment that way. I think it depends who you are and what you're doing. It's like it's so it's so dependent on on your uh the context and the circumstance. You know, and we we sometimes even tie ourselves up in knots when we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, in a lot of cases I mean what I'm seeing the most of now is existing groups or organizations saying, "Oh my gosh, look, we're all white guys, or we're all Americans, or we're all this. We've got to invite this, that, and the other to this conversation. And it's almost like if you're saying that, in some ways it's too late, right? <laughs> you can't turn, you can't kind of indigenize or, you know, deracinate something that's already become established in a certain way. So when I see a group of, you know, 12 intellectual white dudes who've been having a conversation for a year or so, and then they say, well, now we're going to welcome in, you know, women and people of color and indigenous people into this conversation because we realize we need them too. It's like, well, I don't know. I would almost say disband your conversation and start a new one, right? Join one of their conversations rather than because uh, uh, because you're really almost in the process of assimilating rather than you know working with or or playing with other people. For me, uh, a lot of it is is has been. I mean, it's a slow process for me. A lot of it has been by returning to the local. You know, and a lot of the stuff I've been writing lately, I'm trying to write a lot of stories about very local victories that I'm having with, you know, individual people or helping an elderly person do this and to kind of take the emphasis off these abstracted, universal, podcasty, you know, conversations and much more toward the ones that you're having on on the street with your friends or at the bar or in the diner or at the school board because that's where that's where you'll run into the people in some cases they're geographically like you but but you know politically ethnically economically where you'll start you know running into others that you need to actually actually be with so yeah it's partly it's partly it's that you know these these spaces you know since the well 
and Usenet. I've understood that these spaces really are more friendly to that abstract, ungrounded, almost enlightenment understanding of what it is to be to be human. And they're beautiful in their way, but they're very much just one, you know what I mean? They're one clean, safe, sciency part of this picture. And to do what you're talking about, I think you've got to, you know, live much closer to the ground, you know, at to the places where, to the situations where you can't think or click your way out of it, where you've got to actually deal with it, you know, with that, with that raw difference of extremely local in your face kinds of, of stuff. And, you know, in Canada, of course, you're, you genocided less completely the native population. So, you know, you have, well, a more direct experience of the trauma. Um, you also have a more direct opportunity to engage with your um, indigenous population. You know, it's just like in New Zealand and Australia, there's actual, I feel like there's real conversation and, and progress is a tricky word to use, but reconciliation and even forms of repair that we don't quite see in the U.S. because uh, our native populations were so isolated and reserved. But um, again, I'm still interested to see, you know, I'm interested to see what transpires. I mean, I think we're at the very beginning of starting to think about these things in a serious way. Even with something as simple as, you know, in New York State, making sure the people of color have the cannabis stores, you know, it's just like these very basic, like, all right, these are the people we put in jail for it. Do we want do we want Monsanto to make all the money now off this? Um, so just these little things are kind of steps in the right direction. But it's a hard one. I mean, I don't say, and I probably should, whose land I'm on at the beginning of Team Human. I thought about it, then didn't, then was going to do it. Then I'm like, oh, it's going to come off like I'm trying to be like one of those people who does that thing. So it's, it's just a tough one, you know, but something I'm just doing, trying to do it in a kind of moment-to-moment way. And I don't really have good, you know, good general answers on it because it's so improvisatory. It's so situational right now. Thanks. We're getting there. Hello. What's your name? Where are you from? And what is your question? My name is Jacob Sager. I am from Austin, Texas, as uh, my Discord handle shows. Uh, my question is, you know, there's a lot of hating on the billionaires who are building the rockets and going up in a space. But another dimension of that is the overview effect and this kind of quest of people to to see the Earth from space. And I know um, in Present Shock and some of your other literature, you've touched on um, how some other philosophers kind of predicted seeing the Earth from space and maybe were kind of disappointed with the reaction that came out in the earlier generation of the Apollo program. So I'm wondering with this kind of like new 2020s, we're in this phase where, you know, the billionaires are buying their tickets and soon, I guess, the millionaires will be buying their tickets. Uh, kind of what impact do you think seeing the Earth from space will have on society and for Team Human? Well, it feels like the main one right now is we're using a whole lot of oil or whatever fuel that is to get these things out there. You know, it's a lot. I don't know how many, you know, car trips from New York to California you get off one rocket ship to Mars, but I bet it's a lot, right? So we're, we're, we're digging stuff out of the ground to make that happen. You know, I mean, what does it mean, I guess, as that experience becomes more common. Well, I guess I would, I would, it, it's similar to, you know, 
well, how will things change as the psychedelic experience becomes more common? You know, I think it it's going to depend on the set and setting of the people who are going up there. You know, Jeff Bezos goes up there and he's like, oh, this is great. We're going to be able to do mining and whatever up here and all sorts of industrial production and move our operations up here and my empire will become even bigger and yay, you know. William Shatner goes up there and is is moved to tears with depression that the earth is so delicate and small and we're such idiots and don't realize how vast and scary and empty the rest of space is. So I feel like they almost equal each other out. It's like these experiences aren't intrinsically one way or another way. You know, some of us thought, you know, that the seeing the earth from space would launch the environmental movement and let us realize we're on this one small, you know, the tiny green marble out in space or the blue marble, whatever we are. And for some it did and for others it didn't. So I'm almost, I'm thinking that it's net, 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 no change. (laughs) For some people that are, uh, it will be people who are, are leaning towards seeing our interconnectedness and the importance of maintaining this little planet. They will be catalyzed more so. And people who have colonial urges and want to just conquer more planets in the same way that we conquered America and Africa and South America and India and China at one point, then they're going to see it that way. So I don't know. The experience itself will engender different, different responses from different people. I don't know that we, uh, even the internet, you know, those of us at the beginning thought, oh, the internet's going to make everyone see we're part of one world, we're all connected, that you can't really have secrets anymore, so you might as well start behaving ethically. And, you know, the next crowd that came into the internet was like, oh, no, this is going to be a great way to use behavioral finance on an entire population and 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 monitor and control everybody. So, you know, you're, you're, as we used to say on the well, your mileage may vary, right? Yeah, I I appreciate your opinion there. And the first thing you said about kind of throwing back the rhetorical question of what's the impact of, you know, people doing psychedelics, it reminds me of a line from Take Today where McLuhan says, you know, there's no, there's nowhere left to go, but inward or into orbit. So Mm -hmm. I I feel the kind of like similar resonance on um, kind of, I don't know, parallel pursuits having just meaning that people derive themselves. Thank you. Oh, sure. And I guess it goes to then that's why we need not just things like team human, but, you know, philosophy and religion and ethics and liberal arts and the kinds of science fiction we were talking about before that it's it's how do you engender the frames that, you know, lead lead towards, you know, uh, better, more more human and humane outcomes um, rather than the ones that just, you know, pedal to the metal on the same extractive industrial, you know, abuse. Thanks so much, Jacob. We are going to call MWL to the stage. What's your name? Where are you from? And what is your question? Another Canadian, Michael. Uh, Hi, Douglas. This lovely. Really enjoying the riff. Um, You were strong on the decolonization issue and indigenous processes. You've then brought up the word progress, and it fired me off to Henry George, progress and poverty. 
I notice you're interested in land trusts at this point, mm. and I wonder if you can draw any connection between Henry George land trusts and decolonization. I don't really know about Henry George's land trusts, so educate me on them. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I thought you mentioned Robert Anton Wilson's book, Progress and Poverty, as number one. Uh, well-read economist Henry George, the proposer of commonwealth rather mm. than individual property. The game Monopoly as a ripoff of the landlord's game, for instance, as a point in the mentation in the imagination of games that gave us Monopoly as a patterning element. Mm. Perhaps the prosperity change. Rental to the commons, land returned to the gift to all context as a basis for a different rental process rather than the, the disgusting land rush we're having in yeah. Canada. Yeah, well, we're having the same thing here here in the States, you know, with I think Bill Gates is the biggest farmland, agricultural land owner in the U.S. now or close to it. That's what he's doing with his money. And on the one hand, it's good, you know, because it's like, oh, he's trying to protect the land from, you know, industrialization or something. But it's also bad because it's just more owned land. But yeah, I was getting into land trusts, which are basically they, they treat lands more like a commons. And you know, it, it just seemed to be a smarter place to for people to put their money. I know all these people have 401k plans in the U.S., and I'm sure you have retirement plans of, with equivalent numbers in Canada because we're each responsible for taking care of ourselves and our own retirement because we have no social safety net and no communities and no nothing. But I thought instead of investing in the very companies that are destroying the world, and making it harder for us to retire and do everything else, that what if people invested in land trusts? And the kinds of land trusts, I thought, were, you know, these sort of, they're, they're land trusts that are there to um, lease land to small farmers or even, you know, create shared ownership among small farmers so they can, um, you know, uh, uh, I hate to use a word like this, but compete effectively against you know, industrial agriculture. Uh, the, you know, the problem is they're all getting kicked off. They're all getting kicked off their land because of these, this great land grab. So what if we grabbed land, essentially we grabbed land too, but turned the land over to trusts, you know, where, I mean, we could still, I think get some, those of us who put money in, get some amount of income back or food back from the farms or something, you know, until we're made whole again. But, you know, more importantly, we've we've preserved, you know, land for real farming as opposed to turning it all over to these, you know, worst topsoil depleting, uh, you know, conglomerates. Yeah. Extraction. Yeah. Push in a carrier, pull it out. It's, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. a standard it is, but they process. don't, right, they, it's violent. They don't realize, you know, without getting into whatever imagery, you know, they don't realize that the soil is a matrix, not dirt. You know, it's not dirt that you put a chemical on and grow something out of it. It's this living thing. I mean, farming itself is hard enough to do in a non-aggressive way. It can be done, you know, biodynamic and all that kind of stuff. You can grow things without destroying. You could leave the land better than you, you came to it, but you've got to do that consciously. High variety rather than monocropping, yeah, and that's what I'm, I find very entertaining about the um, uh, your project with the book. Uh, as a, a space for creating visions with positivity, 
it's far better to have this space for multiple visions so that there is not competition for the right vision my vision this vision that vision you know so i i look forward to more on this um, this creative process oh, thanks yeah, and well, I am into that. Multiple visions is the key. You know, how do you do that? How do you depict worlds that have multiple positions that, yes, they're sometimes in conflict, but that they all recognize, you know, the requirement for their, you know, coexistence? Well, how many metaverses can change in a phone booth or something? I mean, really, the, the, <laughs> the variety of metaverse is sufficient to stop arguing about the bloody stuff and just get on with I got enough metaverses inside me, much less... Yeah. Outside yeah. me, right? I had a version and find I could rhyme too. So <laughs> thank you, Douglas. Talk sure. later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Sam. Cool. And I'm calling from Atlanta. So one of my favorite uh, of your bits, I guess, is <laughs> when you're talking about as a child and you realize that everything is media and that, you know, we're made of DNA. This sort of, holy shit, I'm, I'm made of media. Yeah. Uh, I love that thread. And as a side note, my uh, my granny actually briefly dated Francis Crick. Um, oh my gosh, I heard he was a horrible guy. He that was weird, according to her stories. I don't know that he's horrible, but he was pretty weird. Oh, they stole. You know, it's like they saw the double helix thing was like in a woman's lab on like another floor, and they saw that, and they're like, "Oh fuck, that's how it works." And then they went up and quickly wrote the paper and took the credit for it. That's what I heard. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not know that. Good. Anyway, so I have had through through your work and through the work of other people like my high school paper was on um neil postman's amusing ourselves to death so i've been thinking mm. about what is media for a lot of my life yeah and i think i'm pretty settled and pretty comfortable with it as a fluid term but i have a much harder time thinking about who is the media and what media credentials are and for a brief time i was a music journalist and i got media access but i was just a guy with a blog and I'm curious if you have thoughts on who the media are other than those people who have large audiences. Well, who? I mean, on some level, all of us, right? Any of us speak, you know, you wear clothes, you're media, right? You wear Nikes, you're media. We're all, I mean, we're walking commercial billboards and we're, we're mediating. But, I mean, what comes to mind for me is the, the sort of the shift in media from media institutions to independent media makers, which on the one hand seemed really positive for a while, you know, that whatever Justin Bieber could, you know, make videos on YouTube and get discovered or Bo Burnham, you know, that, that someone could come from anywhere. So it, it sort of changed the way A&R worked and the way, access worked and all that but there's this other shift you know and i think i've spoken about this but maybe not there's a shift where you know a lot of my friends who are are not a lot but some of them who are journalists for one kind of publication or another and they get in a fight with their editor about one particular paragraph they might want to keep in an article and the editor says no. And then they go, fine, well, I'm taking my ball and going home. And then they go to Substack and make their own thing. And now they're like an independent Substack writer person instead of part of a media institution. So they lose the same kind of obligation to standards and practices and sourcing and, and, 
even fact checking and things like that. I mean, most magazines stop fact checking. Most media stop that. But, but when we move to this independent thing, media becomes in some ways more populist, but, but, uh, less capable. There was specialization that went on in real media institutions that allowed for, and I know a lot of times they dropped the ball and did bad things and promoted wars that they shouldn't have and got in bed with William Randolph Hearst and went to the dollar and said, you know, bad stuff happened. But there was this kind of institutional effort and an educational system around you know, media making and journalism that gets lost in a world where, you know, we're making movies on iPhones and, and, and doing journalism in a completely independent way. So I feel like, you know, media has gotten flatter, if you will. It's like everything it, it's like everything is one click away in this media space, except maybe for some streaming media that you can't get unless you buy an app. But it feels like everything is one. Is it the same level of depth? So media doesn't quite require the same journeys and passages of discovery that it used to. So everybody sees anything. I have to watch what I say because anybody can hear anything I do. There's no more like you can't just speak to sort of your audience anymore. It's weird. It's it's so it, it's fractured. It's indi- it's individually independent and it's got kind of less depth because everything is the same single Google search away. So who's the media? It's everybody and they're they're credibility is so much more predicated on what have you done for me lately than um, any kind of uh, community, uh, you know, community regard. So it's, 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 tra- it's a different, it's a different space. It's better in some ways because it's more in some ways more democratic, I guess, or more open or anybody could say something that ends up heard around the world. But um, the price of that has been, gosh, a, a heck of a lot of, of culture and, and certain kinds of quality that are hard to get without some institutional uh, uh, support. Yeah, I think I kind of had the thought because I've recently reinitiated the practice of blogging and mm. separately the practice of journaling. And I find that I can't really tell the difference between the two. Right. There's a thinking out loud you know, that everybody's doing. And I see, you know, and I've got some friends who've got sub stacks and then they'll, I'll see, oh, they're thinking out loud about this and that. And it's like, oh, now this guy's thinking out loud about Judaism. It's like, that's great. I'm glad you're thinking out loud. But do you really need to share that thinking out loud with 50,000 subscribers right now when 50 scholars have been working on that for 20 years? And there's just people who've thought more deeply about that than you at this particular moment. So, you know, there's this temptation in everybody when we have blogs are trying to feed the beast, right? Oh, I got a medium column. I got to do one a week. So, you know, is it okay for me to write about something I don't really know about just because, well, here's my take. Here's my quick take on it. You know, my hot take as it were. And it's like, no, it's, it's not. And it's so hard to resist the temptation, but I'm learning to now, you know, where people call me from even a reputable news show and say, oh, we want you to come on in an hour and talk about chat GBT. It's like, well, Maybe not, you know, call Cory Doctorow, call this guy, call someone who knows, 
you know, and it's, it's, it's really hard because we're so trained to try to get every bit of attention we can, but to resist that and to say, no, 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 talk to this qualified person. You know, it's, it's, I keep thinking about deep fakes in this regard. And everybody was asking me for a while, oh, no, what are, you know, deep fakes are going to now, you know, you're going to show a deep fake of the president saying this. How's anybody going to know if that's real or if it's not? What are we going to do? Everything's going to fall apart. And I'm like, journalism has always depended on the credibility of the newspaper because you used to be able to write down, you know, if you said President Biden said this and put it in quote marks, that's just as real as, uh, you know, as 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 a deep fake of President Biden saying something. So if we move into that space where anything could be real or anything could be false, now we're going to have to start depending on, well, who's putting this out? Who's wrote that down? What newspaper, what magazine says that he said that? You know, if it's Alex Jones saying that Biden said this, I'm not going to take it as seriously as if it's the New York Times saying Biden said that, even though I know that in some cases the New York Times has biases and says things that aren't true. You know, so it's it's I feel like there's a a need for if not for institutions, a need for us to retrieve the functions that institutions served now that we're moving into this sort of post institutional landscape. Yeah. Thanks for the thoughts. I I do agree with you that it's a post institutional landscape, but I think a a post institutional world doesn't seem possible. And so it's just a puzzle to figure out what's actually going on. Right. Um, It certainly certainly looks post institutional. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously still a lot of them there. There's a lot of things working and institutions are, are not always in in big buildings or something, but it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to navigate. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Sure. Thank you. All right. It looks like we have a question in the channel. Cyber 2000 wrote, uh, at three fifty six. uh, Rob from Wolverhampton, hopefully I'm getting that correct, in the United Kingdom, just finishing a PhD about magic and technology in cyberspace, where magic is metaphor for the power of language and narrative, and it basically argues against STEM extremism and makes the case that the liberal arts are important for solving issues around misinformation, not just technical solutions. And I include fact-checking as a technical solution. Anyway, my question, and I hope it isn't too niche, is I'd like to ask if Doug has an opinion on why it is that media ecology never seemingly took off in Europe. I referred to a it a lot in my work, and it's quite often dismissed whenever I've brought it up. Generally speaking, there's hard to find much of a sustained history in Europe for it. Seems like it never truly made it out of North America. Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, Mumford, Culkin, McLuhan, Ong, and Postman, and I guess a few others, you know, count as these media ecologists who are people who who understand media effects as kind of environments, almost like paradigms, these, these, in, these, these uh, landscapes in which human act interaction happens. And kind of following on from McLuhan, the idea of media ecology, this is for people who don't know what we're talking about here, uh, the idea of media ecology is that, that different media environments engender different ways of thinking and interacting, and it's, it's meant to sort of allow for what you'd call media determinism without being media deterministic. It's a, it's, it's a way of saying, oh, look, when people use that cell phones afford certain kinds that have certain affordances, right? They, they increase this kind of power or decrease that kind of power. They make you more accessible. They do that. And when you're more accessible and more reachable, how does that change all these other things? I think that Europe has rejected it 
because it feels like a reduction of human agency because it feels still too techno deterministic to them. You know, it feels many people think of media ecology, believe it or not, they think of it as almost like a form of capitalism. You know, they, they look at it in the same way that there's this sense of inevitability around media ecology sometimes where we chalk it up to that. Oh, well, you know, well, we're in a digital media environment. Of course, Trump's going to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico because we, we're in a media environment that's digital. We make everything discrete. Yes, no, binaries, one, zero. There you go. And I think they're kind of suspicious of that as, you know what I mean, as too faded, as too deterministic, as too, as diminishing of of the human soul. I mean, in some ways, uh, uh, Postman tried to correct for McLuhan's inevitability. I mean, McLuhan had more of a sense of inevitability, partly because he was a Catholic. You know, Catholics get to the end, where Jews are kind of, uh, uh, for better or for worse, more here in this in this moment. You know, we got Mashiach, but you kind of put that off. The, the Messiah is coming. Maybe I don't know. But don't worry about it. So. He, he was working on that same problem, trying to make it in some ways more more palatable. But no, it doesn't catch on. But media studies never even caught on really in in Europe in in the same in the same way. Media studies has always been looked at as a, not a true liberal art, not a true humanity. That it's like from the communications department, it's like speech, you know, or oral presentation or computer fixing, like technical support, tech support. And it's like they they look at it as as not a genuine academic intellectual discipline. It's like tech studies or something, you know. It's MIT maybe, but not, you know, not Oxford. So yeah, and also because you know you got to remember, media ecology is small. You know, it was a few students of Neil Postman, you know, who decided let's you know, really do this. You know, he started the media ecology program at NYU, which no longer exists, right? Even the place where it was got rid of it, you know, because even they didn't look at it as, and don't, as like cool and and academic or liberal artsy as what they do now, culture and communication. That feels like like something to them. And media ecology, I mean, I love it, but, but um, no, it has so many things working against it in terms of the, you know, the competition for <laughs> the competition for dis for established loved disciplines. But on the other hand, because it's not that known, those of us who kind of do know with it and work with it, we have special skills, right? We say things that seem so counterintuitive to other people. You know, you just do a napkin, you do a tetrad on a napkin of a new technology and you're going to say things about it when you go, Oh, well, you know, I think this technology retrieves such and such. And, you know, and people are dumbfounded. So at least we have our, you know, talk about magic. We've got, it's like an occult practice, right? It's a, uh, uh, but you know, we're preserving it. It'll be, it'll be around as long as, as long as there's media studies, I think. So thank you everyone who showed up and thank you Douglas for uh, continuing this live monthly Q and a it is a delight to do. All right. Be good, everybody. We'll see you soon. And thank you for being on Team Human. This was one of our monthly recordings live from the Kibitz Room, an evolving conversation with the Team Human community. You can join these conversations by joining Team Human. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, which is where the Team Human Live Salons take place. 
Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.